invite you to take a Bible, if you will, and turn to the Gospel of Matthew there at the very beginning of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 2. The, uh, I've changed my sermon for this morning because of the events of this past Friday. Uh, I was going to preach from Luke chapter 1 and the appearance of the angel Gabriel to Mary, but from talking with some of you, and uh, knowing my own thoughts and feelings of the past three days, I decided to deal with another passage pertaining to the birth of Christ, and it's typically one that we uh, somewhat gloss over. I'll begin reading in verse 7 of Matthew chapter 2. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word, that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, and frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the, day of de- until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he arose and took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. So ends the reading of God's word. Let me pray for us one more time. Father, now we come before you. We, you've told us we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. We have hungry souls, and we pray that you would feed us and nourish us now from your, from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> from what I just read to you, Herod had summoned the wise men and asked them, to search for this Christ child in Bethlehem. And he lied to them in order to do that baby harm, not to worship him as he had told the wise men. Oh, by the way, I'm going to, I'm reading. I'm going to read my manuscript. And in case you want to go back and reread it, I posted it on my blog in between the services, word for word. So you can sit back if, if, and if you desire to look at it later, fine. They go to Bethlehem and they see the child and they worship him and they present their unique gifts. But then God warns them in a dream that they depart for their own country via another way. 
Then the angel of the Lord appears to Joseph in a dream and tells them to rise and to take the child and to flee to Egypt since Herod is going to search for the child in order to kill him. Joseph and Mary and the baby Jesus do as the angel instructs and they flee to to Egypt. Herod realizes now that he's been tricked and in his anger he sends soldiers to the small town of Bethlehem to kill all the male children who were two years old and younger. And Matthew, in the passage we read, notes that this is a fulfillment of a prophecy spoken by Jeremiah. And then verse 19 tells us that Herod died. Now, to understand this quotation from Jeremiah, and I hope you have a Bible open and you're looking at it, you have to understand Old Testament times. For Ramah, what refers to as a voice was heard in Ramah, that was a town that was located in between the two kingdoms to the north of Israel and to the south of Judah. It was five miles north of Jerusalem. It was the place where foreign conquerors ordered the defeated multitude to be assembled before they would be deported to faraway places. When the Babylonians or the Assyrians came in and fought against, like Israel to the north or Judah to the south, once they defeated them, they would deport them. They would scatter them or exile them back into Babylon or to many other places. So Ramah was that place where this happened. Well, who is Rachel when it mentions Rachel weeping? This was Jacob's most cherished wife. She gave birth to Joseph. Here, figuratively, Rachel is pictured as being still alive. She had been long dead by the time Jeremiah wrote these words. And figuratively, she is watching the multitudes gathered in Ramah. And she listens to their weeping as families are rent asunder, as children are separated from their parents, and some are told to go that way and others that way, never to be seen by one another again. And as she listens to this and watches this, she weeps. She grieves and mourns because she will be deprived of her children, Israel and Judah, since she was the mother, in a sense, of those nations. Now, the parallel is drawn by Matthew because of the slaughter of those infants in Bethlehem, and therefore he pictures Rachel as weeping again, and for essentially the same reason. These children, too, are no more. And this time, the worldly power that destroyed them was not the Assyrians, as it had earlier in history, or the Babylonians, but this time by cruel King Herod. And Herod was cruel. History tells us that he was a man who was characterized by murder, even of his own family members. So it was nothing to him to send his soldiers to kill these infants. So we see in Matthew's gospel that the birth of Christ was accompanied by the murder of many male children. We don't know how many because Bethlehem and even the surrounding area was not a heavily populated by any means area. But he killed all those aged two and younger. Now, at at our house, we have a manger scene. It is the only thing that lasts from Christmas to Christmas. And we started when we moved here, when Mac Lucas gave us a starter set of Fontanini manger pieces with the stable and the, the baby Jesus and Joseph and Mary. For 25 years, we have added on to this thing. And, and they're five inches in case they're five in, in case you want to add with us. But please don't. We have three tablefuls, three tablefuls of Fontanini. We've got cities, we've got landscapes. I mean, it, it's got it all. 
And I was looking at it last night, and I was looking at the stable, and I see Joseph and Mary, and you've got the sheep, and you've got an ox, and there's one Roman soldier nearby, and he's got a sword in his hand, and he's standing there in an admirable posture. But I also read these words by Doug Wilson. He said, I've often said that nativity sets should include a set of Herod's soldiers. They are as much a part of the Christmas story as the shepherds or the star or the wise men. These traditional figures all glorified Christ in his coming. But the reality of such bloody soldiers was the reason he came. Nothing illustrates the need for his mission to us better than that appalling loss at Ramah. So I guess, to be accurate, there should be Roman soldiers in the manger scene with their swords drawn. A crime of what took place on Friday in Connecticut hits many of us almost beyond belief and leaves us speechless. If you're a parent or a grandparent or just someone that has a heart, it leaves you beyond words. So I've been asked, and now before you, I want to give my pastoral counsel from the scriptures to you. So in a sense, I'm speaking to the members of this church, that if you were to ask me for for some pastoral counsel for your own soul at this time, this is what I would say to you if we had about 15 minutes to talk. How should Christians think and pray in the aftermath of such a horrendous crime? Well, I would let you know that we have to recognize the sinfulness of sin and the full reality of human evil. First, we have to recognize that such tragedies, especially as this, is just as evil, horrible, and ugly as it appears. When I was young, and even as a teenager, often Christians particularly and religious people in general were viewed as having our heads in the sand and never facing reality. And therefore, religion in any form was viewed as a crutch to help people get through. But now I think those roles have been reversed. And I think the world has its head in the sand. And Christianity does not deny the reality and the power of evil, but instead he calls it for its true names, murder, killing, homicide, slaughter. And these murders were great evil, and God's wrath is kindled by the destruction of human life created in his image. We know that from Old Testament scriptures like Exodus 20 that says, Thou shalt not murder. Genesis 9 tells us, Surely I require your lifeblood. From every beast I will require it. And from every man, from every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood by man, his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God, he, of God, he made man. Now, Christians ultimately know that this all is the result of sin and the terrible effects of what's called the fall, the fall. We know that the message of Scripture, which says there is a God who created everything that is. He created men and women. He created you. He created me. And he said his creation was good. But the man and the woman that he created literally walked and talked with him. They enjoyed perfect communication, not only with God, but also with one another. But he gave them one prohibition. They were not to eat of a particular tree. And they chose to disobey God. And that disobedience resulted in spiritual death. Their perfect relationship with God and each other was now wrecked. It was broken. We refer to their disobedience and their their spiritual dying as the fall in the opening chapters of Genesis. That's the fall of mankind into sin and misery. 
Now, within just a short time after the fall, within one generation, we have the first murder of Cain killing his brother Abel. And from that point on, things just got worse and worse as far as the specifics. But the root was the same. Spiritual death, sin had entered the world. That is why even centuries later, King David would refer to himself in Psalm 51 and say, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Later, the prophet Isaiah described his sin and our sin this way. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. Now we need to understand that all evil, and this particular evil, all that exists is nothing of what God's intent for the world was and is. And so death and destruction of human life made in the image and the likeness of God can only come from the result of sin and the work of Satan and his demons. And we also find out from the Bible that sin is always senseless. It never makes sense, and so we often we're left with no answers because sin in and of itself is senseless. Second thing I would urge you as a pastor is to affirm the cross of Christ as the only adequate remedy for evil. There is only one reason that evil does not have the last word, and it will not have the last word, and that is the fact that evil, sin, death, and the devil were defeated at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. They were defeated conclusively, comprehensively, and publicly. Now, after the fall into sin, God promised almost moments later, God promised a Redeemer who would come to save us from sin and death. And this Redeemer would be perfect. He would be called the Lamb of God, for he would be a substitute for the punishment for our sin. And that Redeemer was named Jesus. 700 years before Jesus was born, the prophet Isaiah said he would be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. It had been prophesied that he would be born of a virgin in a little nondescript village called Bethlehem. And that is precisely what happened. Jesus lived a perfect life. He never sinned in thought, word, or deed. The words he spoke and the miracles he performed attested to the fact that he was God. Then he allowed himself to be arrested and put on a Roman cross where he suffered and he died. But while on that cross, he took the sins of his people like you and me and he paid for them. He died offering himself freely as a perfect sacrifice for sin. And the devil delighted in Christ's agony and death on the cross, but he realized too late that Christ's substitutionary atonement spelled the devil's own defeat and utter destruction. So Christ's victory over sin, evil, and death was declared by the Father in raising Jesus from the dead. And so the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is the ground of our hope, and it's the assurance of the final and total victory of Christ over all powers, principalities, and perpetrators. So in the face of such horrendous crimes as was happened that committed this past Friday, we are driven again and again to the cross and the resurrection of Christ, knowing that the reconciling power of God in Christ is the only adequate answer to such a depraved and diabolical power. Third thing I would suggest to you as a pastor is that we have to acknowledge the necessity of justice, knowing that perfect justice will not occur until the day of the Lord. Now you think about this in, in our life. There's Charles Manson, a man who committed multiple murders decades ago, still sitting in a California prison, 
Ted Bundy, who was executed in the state of Florida for multiple murders, but at the same time he escaped both conviction and punishment for others' murders that he was suspected he was suspected of having committed. There's Anders Brebeck, shot and killed scores of young people in Norway, and there was outrage when he was sentenced to less than 30 years in prison. Adolf Hitler, best we know, took his own life. He robbed human courts of their justice. And Vladimir Lenin died of natural causes. Where is the justice? The young murderer in Connecticut took his own life after murdering almost 30 people, most of them children. He will never face a human court. He will never have to face a human accuser. He will never stand convicted of his crimes. And he will never know the justice of a human sentence. Even if he was executed for his crimes, he could only die once. Human justice, though we recognize it, it must be necessary, but it is very, very incomplete. No human court can hand down an adequate sentence for such a crime, and no human judge can ever restore the lives of the victims. So crimes such as these remind us that we yearn, we yearn for total satisfaction of justice that will come only on the day of the Lord. I would speculate that there's a large majority in this congregation that you have suffered injustice of some point and you'll probably never see it satisfied in this world. And we long when all people be judged by the one true judge who will rule with perfect righteousness and justice. The on, and on that day, the only escape will be refuge in Jesus Christ for those who knew and confessed him as Savior and Lord. And on that day, those who are in Christ will know the promise that full justice and restoration will mean that every eye is dry and tears are never more. Now the good news is there will be perfect justice one day. The bad news is that justice will fall on you and me as well. And it will reveal the sins in our heart. And that's why we need a Redeemer. That's why we need a Savior like Christ. The fourth thing I would say to you as a pastor is we have to grieve with those who grieve. Ecclesiastes 3 says there is an appointed time for everything. There's a time for every event under heaven, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. Romans 12 says rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. For now, even as we wait and yearn for the day of the Lord, we grieve with those we grieve, who grieve. We pray and look for openings for grace and hope of the gospel. We do our best to speak words of truth, love, grace, and comfort. And I must address the question, what of the eternal destiny of young children? There is no specific text of scripture that gives us a clear and direct answer. Our human sentiment always will lead us in certain directions. But what I'm talking about is what does the Bible say? We must affirm with the Bible that we are conceived in sin and as sons and daughters of Adam, we will face eternal damnation unless we are found in Christ. That is our understanding of what the Bible teaches. And yet in the Reformed faith, we see glimmers of hope, glimmers of light in the Bible. Now this is unique to the Reformed faith. In the Roman, I've diverted from my manuscript right now. You won't find this on there. But in the Roman Catholic Church, you have the hope based on baptismal regeneration. We don't believe the scriptures teach baptismal generation, which is that baptism saves a person. Therefore, even if a, a youngster had been baptized, that person will always go to heaven. In the Arminian view of theology, there is no hope because that is totally dependent upon a person's decision. But in Reformed theology, 
that, that which came out of the Reformation, which is Calvinistic, which believes in the sovereignty of God, our inability to save ourselves, and that salvation is all of God, we have hope. We have hope. And so our own statement of doctrine, the Westminster Confession of Faith, in chapter 10, paragraph 3, says this. Elect infants dying in infancy are regenerated and saved by Christ through the Spirit, who worketh when and where and how he pleaseth. So also are all other elect persons who are incapable of being outwardly called by the ministry of the word. Having a disabled son, that paragraph gives me hope. And so there are glimmers in Scripture, though not much. As the theologian said, the evidence is meager. So many of these young victims on Friday died before reaching any real knowledge of their own sinfulness and need for Christ. Most were six years old. They, like those who die in infancy and those who suffer severe mental disabilities, never really have the opportunity to know their need as sinners and the provision of Christ as Savior. So we would see they are in a different position than that of an adult who consciously never responds in faith to the message of the gospel. So why do I say this? Why would I even make such a comment? Because here's one of those passages in the Bible that gives us hope. In the book of Deuteronomy, when God's people had left Egypt and they had resisted God and, and not believed him in his promises to take them into the promised land. And so God tells the adults among the ch children of Israel that due to their sin and rebellion, they would not enter the land of promise. But listen to this verse, Deuteronomy 1.39. And as for your little ones infants, who you said would become a prey, and your children, older than infants, who today have no knowledge of good and evil, they shall go in there, and to them I will give it, and they shall possess it. Many, if not all, of the little children who died in Newtown were so young that they certainly would be included among those who, like the little Israelites, have no knowledge of good and evil. So all I'm trying to say is there is biblical precedent for believing that the Lord made provision of them through the atonement of Christ and that they are with the Lord. Last thing I would mention. Back to this passage, Rachel weeping for her children. This tragedy is compounded in emotional force by the fact that it comes in such close proximity to Christmas. But we should always remember that there was a mass murder of children in the Christmas story as well. King Herod's murderous decree that all baby boys under two years of age should be killed prompted Matthew to cite this very verse from Jeremiah. But that, that is not where Jeremiah or Matthew ended the story. They don't leave us there. By God's mercy, there is hope and the promise of full restoration. Jeremiah went on to say, Keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. And then he concludes, There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. God always has the last word, not a criminal. For those in Christ, there is promise of full restoration. Even in the face of unmitigated horror, there is hope. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to your own country. Let us pray together. Oh God, we see your plan for the ages. We see 
the creation of all that is. We see the creation of our ancient foreparents, Adam and Eve. And we recognize our own hearts. We recognize that something is not right. And the good that we want to do, we're not able. And we practice those things that we know are even opposed to you. So we realize and feel the brokenness and evil of tragedy and this tragedy deep in our souls. We pray for those this very moment, probably, who are preaching the gospel. They are teaching in churches there around that area. We ask that your Holy Spirit in a special way would go cause the gospel to go forth with power and bring comfort and hope and perspective for the grieving. And we pray even as we find that our final cry would be, Come again, Lord Jesus, and make all things right once again. In his name we ask. Amen.
forth with the blessing of God. May grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.